I have my Bible opened up to Romans chapter 16, and I encourage you to turn there as well with me this morning if you'd like to follow along. That'll be the text of our lesson primarily this morning. In 1960, Sam Rayburn got word from his doctor that he had pancreatic cancer. And at the time, Sam Rayburn was Speaker of the House of Representatives in, in Washington. As much uh, of the news certainly shocked him, Sam Rayburn shocked the rest of the country even more when he told them that he was going to resign from his post and just simply go home. His home was a small town in Texas, Bonham, Texas, that only had 7,300 people. And people thought he was crazy. They asked him, why would you go back to that little town uh, back in Texas where the best hospitals in the world are right here in Washington, D.C.? And his answer was, because in Bonham, Texas, they know when you're sick and they care when you die. In northwest Wisconsin, there's a little town called Denmark, Wisconsin, that has a population of 1,900. And in that small town, there's a newspaper called the Denmark Press. And one of the writers for the paper described the small community in this way. He said, there is no need for a credit bureau. If a deal can't be made with a handshake, it won't be made. People smile and beep horns instead of snatching one another's purses. That the barber remembers when the mayor was still wiping his runny nose on his sleeve. The bank cashes your check even when you forget to sign it because the cashier recognizes your hand, uh, sloppy handwriting. And the writer concluded this article by saying, that's what a small town is like and I wouldn't dream of living anywhere else. You know, maybe that describes your, your situation. I mean, oh, some of you grew up in small towns that had maybe some of those characteristics, but things tend to change over the years, don't they? And it seems like more and more we are living in a time where people are isolated from one another. Paul Simon sung the words of Simon and Garfunkel many years ago, I am a rock, I am an island. And the idea is I live all to myself. I don't care about anyone else really. And it's true that modern life in the 21st century has turned into a bunch of rocks and islands. People hide behind the walls of their houses and their apartments. They have garages that they open the door, they pull in, they close the garage door, and they never see their neighbors who are uh, isolated by their privacy fences. Many people cut themselves off from any real contact with others. In fact, there, the popularity of technology has made that even more so, where we are to open up with one another and get in touch with people around the world through such things as Facebook and texting and other forms of social media, and yet it has made us privatized, where we don't really have contact with one another. In fact, many uh, school-aged children today cannot look you in the eye because they're used to having conversations with a screen rather than with a person. And one of the problems is that our society being such a mobile one is that mobile mobility many times has cut off our ties and our relationships. It used to be that people, uh, that family was very important to one another in the sense that our lives were deeply surrounded by our family, that people grew up surrounded by their grandparents and their cousins and their uncles and their aunts and people that they related to even though they didn't know exactly how that was. But for some of you, that may still be a reality, but for a lot of people, that is not the case. And it used to be that even community itself was once a very important part of giving people identity, that people were born and they grew up and they all died within the same community. And people knew the people who lived around them. And that during bad times, everyone was there for help. And you would go and you'd fix food for those who were sick or, or you'd build a barn together if yours burned down. 
But today, generally, we don't have that community closeness. And I wouldn't be surprised to learn that most of you probably don't even know your next door neighbor's name. Maybe that's the case, maybe it's not. And so the only relationship that most people have is still our nuclear family, moms and dads and children. And yet that is growing further and further apart in today's society. And maybe it's true that we are becoming a nation of rocks and islands, a nation of strangers. And as a result, we're experiencing an epidemic of loneliness in our society. One Gallup poll reported that four in 10 of Americans emit frequent feelings of intense loneliness. We don't feel wanted or we don't feel needed by anyone else. I realize there are exceptions. I know that many of you have some very close family ties in this area. Some of you still feel that sense of close communityness within our, within our communities. But I think those are exceptions to society rather than the rule. But everywhere you look, there are signs of people who are hungering for closer relationships and communities and a sense of family. You know, when I was younger in the 1980s, there was a TV show series that was called Cheers that was sadly the most popular television show uh, on television at that time. And uh, it wasn't a good show. It was centered around a bar. And many times the things that they were talking about were sexual things. And, and also, of course, uh, every episode they were drinking alcohol. It's not an appropriate thing for Christians to watch. But it had a theme song that, be, that ran at the beginning of the show. And it was one, especially when the show first came out, that often aired on the radio. And the lyrics went like this. Sometimes you want to go where everyone knows your name, and they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see your troubles are all the same. You want to be where everyone knows your name. And what a shame it is that people go to bars to look for that type of thing when God intended it for it to be within the local church. You know, the Bible refers to the church by many different analogies in the New Testament. For example, sometimes the church is referred to as the kingdom, and that stresses the the dominion and the power of God and our responsibility as subjects to our king. The church is also referred to as the bride of Christ, which is an image that stresses the love and the close relationship that we ought to have with Jesus. And the church is also described as the body of Christ, and that image stresses that Jesus is the head and that there is a need for each and every member to do his part, that we do all, as we just sang, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our head. But the most frequently used image of God and his people within the New Testament is the family relationship. And that's particularly the case of the local congregation. Many of those other images may refer to the universal church. But the image of, the, of family is used to stress that close relationship, not only that we have with God as our Father, but with one another as brothers and sisters within the, within the church. You'll notice, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, that Paul tells us, if we can bring this up, is there some, oh, helps if you turn it on. He tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come before you long, but in case I'm delayed, I write to you so that you ought to know how to conduct yourself within the household of God, which is the pillar or the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Notice here he refers to the church as the household of God. It is the family of God. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19, he says, You're no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens and saints. You are of, notice, God's household, God's family. 
in a nation of strangers who have become rocks and islands, we're preaching a gospel that allows, and in fact, even encourage all men to become brothers. In a society of individuals, we share a message of family that accepts uh, and loves and a place where everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came. So I think it's very important that we stress the concept that the church is the family of God and that we come to appreciate that because that is the message of belonging that is needed not only by so many out there in the world today, but even among our own selves. So this morning what I want us to do, I want us to look starting in Romans chapter 16 at a passage I think that demonstrates this belonging quality of the church. The book of Romans is a letter that is different than most of other Paul's others, other letters, with maybe the exception of the book of Colossians, in that he wrote this to a group of people that he had never been to that particular geographical location before. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 13, we read, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you, and I've been prevented thus far, in order that I may obtain some fruit among you, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. In verse 15 of the first chapter, he also says, Thus for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. Paul had never been there. We're not exactly sure how the church in Rome got started, but what is known is that Paul didn't establish this congregation himself. It is very possible that those on the day of Pentecost who were from Rome went back home after the persecution began in that area and started the church there. And, but you would think that since Paul had never been to Rome, that he wouldn't be as personally acquainted with the Christians there. But I want you to notice that Paul is more personal in this letter, the book of Romans, than any other letter that we have that's written by him. In fact, in chapter 16 here, Paul mentions no less than 27 different people here, which is not bad for a place that Paul really had never been to. So how in the world did Paul come to know all these Christians and who they were? Well, keep in mind that in Roman society that was almost as mobile as ours is today, and he probably came in contact with these people all over the Roman Empire who finally went back home or had moved to Rome. And so as Paul mentions these names, you can almost visualize him seeing these people one by one. And they were so precious in his heart, he wanted to, to see them once again. So he wanted to be there and, and greet each one individual, but he can't be. So he does the very next best thing, and he mentions those who were special to each one of them and says something special about them. Now, as we're going to read through here, verses 1 through 16 of this passage. But as you read this, it becomes very evident here that these, this church or churches in the city of Rome were a very diverse group of people. We're going to see that there are men and women here. There are Jews. There are Romans. There are Gentiles, people of different nationalities. There are household stress and probably churches that are mentioned here. And surely there are those who are wealthy and those who are poor. In other words, it is just a diverse group of people here. So I want to look at this just a moment here as we look at Romans chapter 1, uh, 16 rather, beginning verse 1, where he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Cancrea, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, that you help her in whatever manner she may have need of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. Here's a woman who is considered a servant of the church. Uh, she's not an office of a deaconess by any means, but she's just a worker. 
uh, some people believe that maybe she brought the letter of Romans to the Romans here. That she has had a great reputation of being a helper, not only of Paul, but of so many other people as well. In verse 3, we, say, we read, great, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also to the churches, do the churches of the Gentiles. Here he mentions Prisca and Aquila. We know them mainly by Priscilla and Aquila. This name Prisca is a diminutive form. It's like a nickname. And that's how Paul refers to her here. Luke calls her always Priscilla. He also refers to her as Priscilla in other passages, but he refers to her here as Prisca, as well as in 2 Timothy chapter 4 as, as Prisca, and a close relationship here that they had. They were fellow workers. They were tent makers together. First Corinthians chapter 18 tells us they had a close relationship. And here we get this additional information that we do not know from anywhere else and that they even risked their own lives to help Paul. And so they had worked alongside Paul and very close to him on many occasions. In verse 5, it says, Greet the church that is in their house. Greet Apeatus, uh, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ uh, from Asia. Uh, his name here means praiseworthy. And Paul said that he is the first one saved from Asia. Now, your translation may say Achaia, which would make more sense because that's probably where Paul was writing this from, was Corinth where Achaia was. But uh, the best and oldest texts actually say Asia. But he was special to Paul for that very reason. And also, as we continue to read on, we read, greet Mary, who worked hard for you. Here's a person who worked hard, a woman here in the city of Rome. And then verse 7, Andronicus, greet him, and Junius, my kinsmen, my fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles, who were in Christ before me. Here are two people that Paul calls his kinsmen. Find it interesting there. Maybe they were cousins of some type. We just don't know. But they were Christians even before Paul was. I wonder if they've been praying for Saul of Tarsus that he might change around and come to the Lord. And yet he, he calls them here my fellow prisoners. I don't know if they were literally prisoners. At this point, Paul had only been a prisoner for a night, really, that we know of in, in the city of Philippi. He had not been in prison otherwise. But here they, here, uh, they were prisoners and fellow workers with Christ even before Paul had been. In verse 8, it says, Greet Ampliatus, uh, and my beloved in the Lord. Uh, here's a man whose name means large. So I picture this big man, this big burly man who comes in to the church in Rome. But again, he calls him the beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus and our, our fellow worker in Christ and Stachus, my beloved. Uh, here's the, the original odd couple here because Urbanus means someone from the city. Uh, urban is where we get our word there. And Stachus means from a corn of grain. So here you've got the city slicker and the hasty plowboy that are all together here in the church in Rome. They couldn't be any different, and yet they're working together. And then in verse 10, it says, Greet Apollos, uh, the approved of Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. So here's Apollos, who's this dedicated saint who has proven himself faithful to Christ, and Aristobulus, who is a, is a man who has led his household in worship to God. In verse 11, greet Herodian, my kinsman. Greet those of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Uh, Herodian, again, another kinsman of Paul. Narcissus, this poor guy, his name means stupid, but uh, here is a guy who was very wise in bringing his household to the Lord. And then greet Tryphania and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. There's two women, and their names, Tryphania and Tryphosa, is delicate and dainty. Uh, two, two feminine names. Here's two 
feminine, dainty little girls. Some people think that they may have been twins. We just don't know. But here's two women who are dainty and delicate, and yet they have their part in the work of the Lord as well. Greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. Persis means a female name, someone from Persia. So here's someone who has come from a long ways away, probably from a different race, a different, certainly different nationality, and yet she is accepted as well within the work there. Verse 13, greet Rufus, a choice man of the Lord, also his mother and mine. The name Rufus is an interesting one because we read in Mark chapter 15 that Simon of Cyrene was to carry the cross of Jesus. And it says there, Mark makes the point that, that Simon was the father of Rufus and Alexander. And you have to wonder if it's the same Rufus. There were many Alexanders. But Mark wrote his gospel to those who are in Rome. And here's a man who is in Rome. So it very, very well may be that Rufus' father was Simon Cyrene. But what's important is also his mother whom Paul viewed so close to her that uh, he viewed her as his mother as well. And then reading on in verse 14, greet uh, Aniscritus. Uh, some of these names obviously very difficult for us to pronounce. Someone told me a long time ago, if you're, you don't know how to pronounce it, just read it fast and confidently and no one else will know anyway. Philegion, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brethren with them. Greet philologus, which means a lover of the word. Uh, that'd be interesting in a sermon of itself. Are we a philologus, a person who loves God's word? And Julia and Nereus and his sister and Olympus and all the saints who are with them greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. And so they are greeted by God's church throughout the Roman Empire. So can you see the, the diversity here that made up the local church there in Rome and churches possibly? You know, as we look at the brethren that with Paul, it's also interesting here to note those who are sending their greetings to the church in Rome. In verse 23, he says, Gaius, host to me and the whole church greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer greets you, and Quartus, the brother. Gaius was a traveling companion of Paul we read about a few times in the book of Acts and other letters. But we also read about Erastus here. And if he's writing from Corinth, we have found in archaeology uh, a, a plate that says uh, uh, Erastus that talks about him holding this position. And here, here he is, uh, the city treasurer, probably a wealthy politician here who is a Christian in Corinth. But also we read about Quartus, the brother. We don't know anything about him. But his name just means the number four. That's probably how they knew him. His name was just number four, which means he probably grew up a slave, and that's just what they called him was number four. And yet Paul accepts the wealthy politician as well as the slave, and together they are in Christ. What I want you to see is that in Jesus, all the barriers are broken down. He makes us one in himself for the glory of the Father, and we have to appreciate that. You know, these people were as different as they possibly could be, but they were brought together in the Lord Jesus, and he made them one family to the glory of God. And Paul calls them all family. In fact, three of them, Andronicus, Junian, Herodian, he calls his relatives. Again, maybe that was physically, or maybe it's that relationship that they had in Christ. Others he simply calls brothers. Phoebe, in verse 1, is called a sister. And others like Ampelus and Paris are called Paul's beloved or dear friends. You know, it almost sounds like when Paul gets to Rome, he's expecting to have this big family reunion. Because all these names and descriptions, there must have been a lot of stories. So how could Paul call so many 
his brother and his sister and even his mother. Well, he must have known all these people very well. He spent time with them serving God and they were a part of his family. There was a real bond here that joined these people to Paul. And that bond was a mutual involvement in the church of our Lord. They were all members of the family of God. Well, even today, we need to thank God for the diversity that marks the church here in this location. There are differences in our backgrounds. There are differences in our, uh, in our educational levels. There are differences in our economic statuses and many other differences. Yet we are brought together in one as a family in Lord Jesus Christ. And I praise God for all the ways in which we are different. There are some Christians who are as strange as a football bat, but they serve a special place within the body of Christ. God saved us like we were, warts and all, that He might take us in our diversity and use us in His church to His glory. But as different as we all are, we're family. And we need to learn to appreciate that within the local church. We are family because we are the Lord's church. And I think it's safe to say that the word church doesn't mean to most people in the world, even the religious world, what it meant to Paul in this passage. Because I think the word church has become something that's very impersonal in our society today. To many, the word church refers simply to the building. Uh, people will say things like, you know, the church really needs a new coat of paint. Or how many, people, how many church does that people seat? And to them, church is just a building where you can go and you can give God a small piece of your time every a few hours a week. To some people, the word church conjures up the image of this big corporation. To them, a church is, is a group of men sitting in a conference room that are making up rules and regulations for people to live by. To others, the church is a lecture hall. It's where you go and you, you listen to a preacher preach and you become better informed. Still, to others, the church is a theater where you go not to participate, but to watch other perform on stage. And to a good many people, the church is like being a member of a social club or a lodge which exists for the entertainment and enjoyment of His people. But the picture of the church within the New Testament is something that's entirely different. When you read the book of Acts, you don't see a picture of a church that is a building or a corporation or a lecture hall or a theater or even a social club, but rather the church is a place of belonging. It is a place of fellowship. The early church recognized the need to be together in Acts chapter 2 and verse 46. And we'll look at that in just a moment. But many of those early Christians gave up their physical family to follow Jesus. And the church became their family, the family of God. And it's that closeness and that, think that sense of belonging that is reflected right here in Romans chapter 16. And it's that closeness and the sense of belonging that I think that we need to recapture within the Lord's church today in every congregation. The love that, that members of the family of God should have for one another, I think is often stressed within the scriptures. For example, Paul told Romans, uh, the Romans in Romans chapter 12 in verse 9 that love ought to be without hypocrisy. In other words, you need to have a sincere love. Don't just say, I love someone. Show that you love that particular member of the, Christ, uh, of the body of Christ. He says, abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Notice, be devoted to one another in, love, in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in, in, in honor. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2, 
He says to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. We need to be there for one another, to hold one another up, both physical and, of course, spiritual burdens in the context. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, So then, we, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men. We need to be benevolent and help out everyone around us, but especially to those, notice, who are the household, the family of the faith. And that love of the early Christians didn't go unnoticed by the world. The world around them saw how Christians loved one another and were committed to one another. They saw Christians sacrificing to help one another who were in need. They saw Christians weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. The world had never seen such a sense of family, and long before non-Christians grasped the finer points of what being a Christian was all about, they saw a community of believers who truly loved one another. And they saw that, and it was attractive to them. They wanted to be a part of that. And I want, to, I want you to understand the same thing can happen today. There are those in the community who can see this local group meeting in North Columbus as a close-knit family and say, I don't have that, and I want that, and be attracted to Christ. I understand they will never be a part of the body of Christ without the teaching and learning about Jesus Christ and the resurrection that we talked about earlier today. But I want, you to, I want to stress this morning that we are family. But we need to understand and we need to believe it. We need to live it. We need to appreciate that because I think sometimes we take that for granted. But how do we do that? How do we live and love like a family? I don't think there's a, a magic formula to doing that. Uh, it's simply a matter of caring about one another, spending one one time with one another. It's about getting together to eat with one another, as there's planned for the brethren to do this afternoon. Times to get together and pray with one another. Times to get together to study God's Word together. Sometimes just get together to chat, to lay our burdens upon one another. Doing things together, going to places together, and in the work of the Lord together. These are the kinds of the things that make us a family. But it's so easy to make excuses, isn't it? So easy to say, well, I just don't have time. I've got a job and I've got uh, all these things with my children. I'm just too busy. I've got so much going on in my life to care about anything that's going on in yours. Or maybe we just don't give it much thought. We take it for granted. We don't appreciate the local church like we ought to. We haven't trained ourselves to start thinking beyond our own four, four walls. Or maybe we're hesitant to get involved because if you're going to care about something, it's going to require some time and some effort to get involved in the lives of people and their problems. But if you're looking for a place of belonging where people know who you are and care about you, let me give you a few specific ideas this morning to challenge you. First of all, I would suggest to you that you make time to come here early and to leave here late. And one of the things I've discovered in all the times that I've been a Christian is that anyone who complains that, you know, no one's friendly down there at that church, or I just don't feel like I fit in very well, generally speaking, most likely it's coming from someone who just shows up right before worship starts and leaves as soon as the final prayer is said uh, and make a beeline for the parking lot there. You know, brethren, I don't know if that describes you this morning, but if it does, then you're never going to see this group of people as your family, and you're missing out on one of the greatest blessings that God has to offer you. So get here early enough and stay here long enough afterwards to speak to people about their lives. See what's going on in the lives of your brethren. Uh, missed that point. Second of all, talk to different people than you normally do. You know, Paul didn't just greet one or two people in this chapter. That certainly would have been fine. He sometimes does that in some of his other letters, but he greets a lot of people. 
I realize there's a tendency as soon as worship is over to get to three or four people who might sit right around you or maybe those whom you feel closest to or something like that and talk to them about what's going on in their life. That's a natural tendency. That's what we do. We like our comfortableness. But let me challenge you to reach out to others, to talk to those whom you don't normally talk to and try to get into the lives of those that you don't know as well. But thirdly, get involved in the work of the church. The church in Rome was filled with workers for God's kingdom. Paul called Prisca and Aquila and Urbanus and Tryphania of Tryphosa. He refers to them all as fellow workers in Christ Jesus. In verse 6, he calls Mary. In verse 12, he calls Persis. He says those who had worked hard for the church in Rome. They all served in various capacities, no doubt, but they all served and they worked hard. And no doubt this working together helped their relationship to grow. We grow closer together when we work together for a common purpose. You know, the word that's translated fellowship within the New Testament is the word koinonia. I'm sure you've heard that word before, but it might surprise you to learn that that word does not mean having a potluck supper. The word koinonia simply means a sharing. And it's actually a spiritual sharing that we involve ourselves in, not physical You know, once we become a Christian, we automatically begin sharing in so many things. We're sharing in the blood of Christ. We are sharing in salvation. We are sharing in spiritual blessings. We have all those things in common. We shared just a moment ago the Lord's Supper and remembering that. But also, fellowship is the idea of sharing your portion of your life with someone else. It's sharing your needs, your hurts, your joys, your laughters, your tears, your life experiences. Sharing what you know about the Word of God. And one of the best ways to share with someone is through doing things together. And as you do these things together, you share an experience that draws you closer together as you're working to the Lord, for the Lord together. We experience that uh, when we work together, when we put on a meeting like this, when we work together to do Bible classes. These are opportunities that help us to re- in a relationship with one another. Uh, they are kinds of things that make you feel a part of this group. But they can only do that if you want to be a part of this group, if you want to be closer to your family. So I would encourage you to get involved. There's always some area that you can do something in that you haven't been doing or do more of. Fourthly, I would suggest to you that you get together with someone with church for a meal. You know, this is some of the things they did early on in Acts chapter 2 and verse 46. Day by day, they continued with one mind in the temple They were worshiping together regularly, but notice also they were breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. What this verse tells us is not only were they spiritually communing with one another, but they were in each other's lives on a regular basis. I would encourage you to do the same thing as well. Invite someone over. It doesn't have to be a feast. It can be bologna sandwiches. All that matters is that you're getting together. It's not about the food. Or ask somebody to go out to eat with you. But make the effort to give the invitation to someone you don't know very well. I realize that sometimes it's difficult to get to know everyone well, but in a congregation of this size, it ought not to be as difficult. And if what you want is to be invisible and not get to close to anyone, that's still easy for you to do. Just don't do anything at all. But I also want to tell you this morning, if that's what you want to do, you're missing out on something very special that the Lord has intended for the body of Christ. But let me also suggest to you that you need to be praying for one another. Again, in Romans chapter 1, in verse 9, he says, For God is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers. You know what? Paul says this a lot in many of his uh, different uh, writings. He certainly was praying for a lot of people. He 
spent time for his spiritual family in Rome in prayer. These saints were special to him. He says that in his words, but he makes it clear that that is the case by how much he was praying for him. They were in his heart. And what a challenge it is to the church of God in this day. Do we often pray for your other saints in this room throughout the week as you go to God in prayer? Do we take advantage of the opportunity that's afforded by the Lord to pray for one another by name on a daily basis? I don't know if you have a directory or not or if it's in your phone or whatever it may be, but take it out every once in a while. Go down through the names and think about them specifically before the Lord as you go before His throne and talk about them to God. And when we pray for people, those people will become special to us. We enter into their lives and enter into their burdens and we develop a heart for them. And as this occurs, we're bound more closely together as children of God. Pray for one another by name daily. You know, sometimes you hear people say, you know, I just don't see why church is important. I think it's important to follow Christ, but I can, I can do that all by myself without needing others. I can be this Christian at large. That I'm following the man and, and not the plan. That I'm, I'm following the head, but not the body. I'm following the father, but not my brethren. You know, several years ago, studies were conducted among former American prisoners of war to determine what methods the enemy had used and what was most effective in breaking their spirits. And, and the findings revealed that the soldiers didn't break down from necessarily uh, 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 physical deprivation or, or torture as quickly as they did from solitary confinement. It was further learned that the soldiers were not sustained primarily by faith in their country or by the rightness of the cause for which they were fighting. They grew, drew their greatest strength from their close attachments that they had to the small military units to which they belonged. And I suppose it's possible to be a soldier all by yourself in this world, going out and trying to fight for Christ and trying to do it all alone. But I can tell you without reservation that I surely wouldn't want to do it. And that's not the way that God intended within His Scriptures. You cannot be a Christian all by yourself without the support of a loving and caring congregation. So why would we even try? In God's wisdom, He gave us one another. I need you, and you need me. We need each other. And the battles that we fight would be awfully tough without the support that we provide for one another. And so this morning, this lesson has had two messages that I want you to leave with. To those of you who are Christians, it asks you the question, are you striving to be the family member of this local body of Christ that you need to be? Do we truly love one another? Do we appreciate one another? Are we spending time with one another? Is the term brother just a simple empty title, or does it really mean what it's supposed to mean to us? Second of all, to those who, of you who maybe not are, are not Christians this morning, it raises the question, do, don't you want to be a part of something like this? Don't you want to be a part of the family of God? This morning, do you have the desire to obey Christ, to be born of the water and the Spirit, to be born again, but this time not into a physical family, but the family of God? What it requires then is that we become His children. And then we naturally inherit all of these brothers and sisters in Christ, and we work together to what God would have us to be. But it requires that you change your life. You repent of your sins. You confess your faith in Jesus Christ and you be baptized to have your sins washed away. You come in contact with the blood of Christ. 
After that, you're a child of God, but you need to remain one. You need to remain faithful to the Lord. And maybe there's someone here this morning who's had a difficult time doing that. That you need to have your brothers and sisters bear your burden. Let that be known to us. If you need to respond to the Lord's invitation anyway, why don't you come forward now as we stand and as we sing.